boy here i am welcome to another episode of strange days this is your host doc on this beautiful friday february 23rd of 2024 sorry about the late um starting time i apologize but here i am and here you are welcome to the show if you guys want to join us you know the drill i post a link to our comment section that's visible via our youtube channels if you want to come in and hop on the show you're welcome other thing you can do is you can call our line at 951-888-0313 to come on the show as well. And today we're going to be speaking about some angel encounters and also some urban legends. I kind of like the topic of urban legends. Been, we've been doing it to death recently, but you know what? I learn a new thing every day and I I enjoy that. This is sort of what it's uh, it's all about, learning different things that haven't been discussed too much to make things more fun. All right, let's see here. Just kind of get settled down a little bit. Make sure you guys are doing good. Okay, so here we go. We're live. Perfect. So you guys want to make some comments? See how you guys are doing. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, Where should I start? Where should I start? Let's do a little uh, icebreaker here. We'll go to, yesterday we were traveling around the world with urban legends. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about some McDonald's urban legends. McDonald's is one of those restaurants that everybody hates, but at the same time, we both, or everybody really engages in. Sometimes you just get the craving for a bad hamburger. I know I do. Some of the stuff that's been associated, um, this is not an exhaustive list, but, you know, there's also urban legends, um, more than the ones that you can find online. And I'm sure it's probably territorial as well, depends on where you live and what sort of things you've heard about McDonald's. But some of the common ones here, for example, let's see, this is a funny one. They, uh, there's an urban legend that actually McDonald's was funding terrorism. In the late 1980s, rumor persisted in the UK that McDonald's was covertly funding the provisional IRA. And if you guys uh, remember, the IRA was the Irish Republican Army. Remember those conflicts back in the 80s in, in Ireland? Um, so, which basically there were, McDonald's was providing, uh, you know, some kind of means for the IRA, which was designated as a terror organization back in the day via NORAID. Uh, the source of these tumors were eventually traced to a CNN talk show in which the company was praised for its generosity in providing funding, funding for employees via individual retirement accounts, IRA. <laughs> so they just got the acronym wrong. That's crazy. Yeah, I, an IRA is uh, what we usually call them. We call them IRAs, but we call them an IRA here in the U.S. And they're just basically money that you that gets lent aside, um, sort of like a pension, if you will, 
for people that employ. So somebody took it off and they said, oh, there they are providing. Though I providing for the RA, mate. Can't go to McDonald's anymore. That was my British accent. Anyways, um, unusual ingredients. There's always been, uh, you know, rumors about McDonald's utilizing or substituting substitutes unusual or unethical substance for their products, usually to decrease costs. Um, one such unusual ingredient that was blamed the McDonald's was earthworms. Dating back to at least 1978, this rumor claims that McDonald's restaurants use earthworms in their hamburgers. This warm in the burger rumor was originally attached to Wendy's burger. So it's always been sort of within the vicinity of your fast food restaurants um, that concentrate mostly on selling burgers. I don't know if we have Wendy's in California. I don't know if you guys have Wendy's in other states. Um, I don't know. Make a comment below if you don't. If you never heard of Wendy's, they're they're okay. Um, another unusual ingredient credited to be used in McDonald's was cow eyeballs. One believe is that McDonald's uses cow eyeballs in its products, permitting it <laughs> permitting it to a brand them as 100% beef. <clears throat> I don't know if they qualify as beef per se, but they are 100%. Um, cow material. However, the United States Department of Agriculture mandates that all beef byproducts, including cow eyeballs, be approximately appropriately labeled. I would hope so. McDonald's has asserted that its products contain 100 pure USDA inspected beef. No additives, no fillers, no extenders. In addition, cow eyeballs are actually more expensive than the more commonly eaten cow parts due to the demand from scientific institution for experiments. A related claim is that McDonald's buys its meat from a company called 100% Beef, making it possible for McDonald's to call beef byproducts and soy products 100% beef. That's pretty witty. That's a pretty witty statement. They've also been accused of using mutant laboratory meat. Around March, April 2000, an internet rumor spread via an email in Brazil claiming that McDonald's meat was actually made from a genetically modified animal maintained in a laboratory, attributing the finding to the Michigan State University. This email stated that the creatures uh, kept were figures without legs and without horns, which were fed through tubes connected to the stomach, and which in fact have no bones but a little cartilage that never develops. And anyone who has seen them assures that they are very unpleasant things, because in addition to remaining immobile all of their life, they have no eyes, no tail, and practically no fur. In fact, the head is the size of a tennis ball. So it's just a meatball, if you will, a technically realistic meatball. The email carries on saying that some irreversible health, health damage can be done by eating this meat, resulting in disease who manifest themselves in a very similar way to AIDS. Wow, this is very educated. And have symptoms related to Alzheimer's disease. Okay, keep throwing all the scary stuff out there. And ends encouraging the reader to boycott McDonald's until it sells actual beef. The herbal legend has also been attributed to other fast food chains and animal products such as KFC and mutant chickens. There's a whole thing with KFC that they used to be called Kentucky Fried Chicken and have since stopped selling chicken. They sell something fake now that resembles chicken. And so by a court order, they had to change their name to KFC. <clears throat> Confectionery cheeseburgers. Another story or urban legend claims that if McDonald's cheeseburgers did not include pickles as an ingredient, the cheeseburger would be classified as confectionery item. 
It stems from the belief that the sugar content in the bun is high, but adding a pickle then keeps the overall sugar percentage below the threshold of what is classed as confection. McDonald's have stated that this story is an urban legend. Pickles are usually sweet, but they, you know, especially the ones they put in hamburgers, so I would say to the opposite, they probably add more sugar. Let's see, pig fat. The rumors that McDonald's uses pig fat in its milkshakes, ice creams, and fried potatoes, or french fries. McDonald's provides a complete ingredient list of all its products on each of its regional websites. This includes unidentified fats within the ice cream used to make the soft serve cones and sundaes, which are one of my personal favorites. The claims that McDonald's dairy products contain pig fat has been denied by the company on several occasions. I remember that McDonald's fries used to be way, way tastier back in the 80s. <clears throat> That's when they used uh, peanut, peanut-based oil. Uh, and now the, the, the oil, for obvious reasons, doesn't contain peanuts anymore due to the large percentage of people that have allergies. But back in the day, the peanut oil used to just uh, cook them fries uh, rather tastier. Around 2014, a photo of pink slime or pink goop was widely shared uh, and claimed to be what chicken McNuggets were made of. This has led to McDonald's Canada releasing a video showcasing how real chicken nuggets are actually made in response. Okay. And a fake news website in 2015 have purported that McDonald's restaurants in Colorado are converting children's playground to lounges for on-premises cannabis consumption. Oh. The story has been disavowed by McDonald's spokesman. Yeah. There it goes. <laughs> That's funny. McDonald's has a playground for stoners. Wow. Let's see here. Baby train. We talked about that. Let's talk about the treasures of Lima. Let's go to South America. Let's go to Peru. My, my leg of the woods. My neck of the woods, sorry. The treasures of Lima is a legendary buried treasure uh, reputedly removed from Lima, Peru in 1820 and never recovered. It is estimated to be worth up to 160 to 200 million dollars in today's money. Um, Spain controlled Lima since the 16th century when it uh, defeated the Incas. In the centuries that followed the Roman Catholic Church, gather a huge treasure in Lima. In the early 19th century, Spain, Spain began to have difficulty with its colonies due to wars of independence in South America. Lima was no exception, and thus in 1820 the city came under heavy pressure and finally had to be evacuated. This is known as the Peruvian War of Independence. 1920 Lima was on the edge of a revolt as a preventative measure the Viceroy of Lima decided to transport the city's fabulous wealth to Mexico for safekeeping. The treasures included jewel stones, candlesticks, and two life-size gold statues of Mary holding baby Jesus. In all, the treasure was valued between 12 to 60 million at that time. Captain William Thompson, commander of the Mary Deer, was put in charge of transporting the riches to Mexico. Thompson and his crew proved to be unable to resist the temptation. They turned pirate cut the throats of the guards and accompanying priests and threw their bodies overboard. Captain Thompson headed for Cocos Island off the coast of present-day Costa Rica, where he and his men allegedly buried the treasure. 
they then decided to split up and lie low until the situation had come down, at which time they would reconvene to divvy, divvy the spoils. However, the Mary Deer was captured and the crew went on trial for piracy. All but Thompson and his first mate, James Alexander Forbes, were hanged. To save their lives, the two agreed to lead the Spanish to the stolen treasure site. They took him as far as the Cocos Islands and then they managed to escape into the jungle. Excuse me, Thompson, the first mate, and the treasure were never seen again, though it is believed that Thompson returned to Newfoundland with the aid of a whaling ship. Forbes settled in California, became a successful businessman, but it never returned to the island. Since that time, hundreds of treasure hunters have traveled to Cocos Island and tried to find the treasure of Lima, sometimes also referred to as the loot of Lima or the Cocos Island treasure. One of the most notable was the German August Ginsler, who lived on the island from 1889 to 1908. Another was the American gangster Bugsy Siegel, and yet another was New Zealand explorer Frank Worsley. None succeeded in finding the treasure. One theory is that the treasure was not buried on the Cocos Island at all, but on an unknown island off the coast of Central America. The Costa Rican government does not allow treasure hunting any longer and believes that no treasure exists on the island. If that's the case, then why do they not allow treasure hunting? Hmm, makes you wonder. Underscoring this legend are several facts. Fact number one, in 1855, a New York newspaper printed a letter the year prior from San Francisco, which recounted that there was a treasure expedition going to Cocos Island based on a near-deathbed confession. Only the treasure did not come from Lima, was allegedly uh, came from a Spanish galleon that had been captured in 1860 by pirates and buried in Cocos Island. Uh, number two is the Arthur Geisler, uh, who lived in Cocos Island. Uh, his quest for the treasure was also unsuccess- unsuccessful. In over 20 years, he never found more than six gold coins. That's that's good enough, despite diligent uh, searching. By 1929, the version of the so-called Cathedral of Lima treasure was printed in American newspaper. And another version of the last treasure of Lima claims it was buried in a Taumato archipelago in the French Polynesian from a 1939 book, The Treasure of the Tomatoes, based on hearsay, obviously. An art project called Treasure of Lima Buried Exhibition took place in Cocos Island in May 2014. A container with artworks by 40 different artists was buried in a secret location where the coordinates auctioned off. Huh, very cool. That's a Treasure of Lima. So if you guys maybe go to have a little island hopping trip and... Well, you would have to kind of break the law, right? And you can go treasure hunting. See what would happen with that. Maybe you find yourself in a beautiful treasured tropical jail. Um, What else can we check here? Let's do this one. This is pretty interesting. This is uh, another um, such urban legend that occurred in South America. This is about James Bartley. Let's see what happened to Mr. James Bartley here. James Bartley lived from 1870 to 1909, and he is the central figure in a late night 19th century story, uh, according to which he was swallowed by a whale and he was found still living days later in the stomach of the whale, which was dead from harpooning. 
The original story of an anonymous form began to appear in American newspapers. The anonymous article appeared in the St. Louis Globe of St. Louis, Missouri. Then another note appeared in other newspapers with the title A Modern Day Jonah or something similar in multiple newspapers. The news began to spread beyond the ocean in articles as Man and Whale Stomach, Rescue of a Modern Day Jonah, in page 8 of the August 22, 1891 issue of the Yarmouth Mercury in England. The story, uh, as reported, is that during a whaling expedition off the Falkland Islands, Bartley's boat was attacked by the whale, and he landed inside the whale's mouth. He survived the ordeal and was carved out of the stomach by his peers when they, not knowingly, uh, when they, not knowing, was inside. He caught and began skinning the whale because of the hot weather. Otherwise, he would have rotted with the whale meat. Pretty nasty. It was said that Barley was inside the whale for 36 hours, so man falls over into the whale's mouth. His shipmates don't realize that. They harpoon the whale, and then the whale dies, rises to the surface, and this dude had a knife, starts carving himself out. Um, so he was there in about for 36 hours, it was inside the whale. And believe it or not, this caused his skin to be completely bleached by the gastric juices and that he was blind for the rest of his life. In some accounts, however, he was supposed to have returned to work within three weeks. He died 18 years later and his tombstone in Glowcaster says James Barley, a modern day Jonah. That's pretty cool. I won't buy that story. It sounds pretty legit. Especially, it's kind of creepy that he turned white from the gastric juices. I don't know if that's... I mean, gastric juices are supposed to break down skin, not really turn white. But hey, it's an urban legend for some kind of reason. Um, Let's see. We've done a lot of... <clears throat> We've done a lot of different um, different countries. Let's go to the Philippines. Here, uh, it's called Abidingan. Abidingan is a mythical city that is said to, invis to invisibly lie between two provinces, uh, Gandara, Tarangna, and Pasanga in Samar province in the Philippines. So it's basically a mythical city that is lies between a bunch of cities in an upper northern uh, province of the Philippines. <clears throat> this uh, so this is kind of like <clears throat> if you watch Black Panther, you know that city that the Black Panthers live in, where it's like super hyped up and like flying things. So, quote unquote, um, ultra modern. That's what Biringam is supposed to be—an ultra modern city, said to be located in this region. It is also designated as a. I'm not going to pronounce those words. I didn't, according to the local folklore, the population of Biringam comprises of supernatural beings, the Encantos, or enchanted beings, and their progeny within the humans. The Encantos are described as uh, shapeshifters who can take human form. In their human form, they are said to lack a filter between the nose and the lips. The city is also alleged to contain treasures of gold, the filtrum is like the little, if you look at your face, what lies between your nose and your mouth, the little thing that looks like a like a little ramp, that's a filtrum. So if people don't have a filtrum, there's two possibilities, okay? 
one is they're either from this mythical region of the um, of the Philippines, or two, their parent, their mom was drinking alcohol while they were pregnant. A flattened or smooth filter may be a symptom of fetal alcohol syndrome, believe it or not. So if you ever meet somebody with a flat filtrum, you know, uh, their parents either engaged in alcohol consumption while they were being formed, or maybe they're mythical creatures. Either or. It's worth asking. All right. So I think that's going to conclude our uh, urban, unknown urban legends for now. We've done like three, four shows. Um, and we'll move on to something else. Let's see. We're gonna. The last thing I want to do is kind of document uh, people that have come across angels. You know, people that have come across angels or had a. a um, they've had a. They've had contact with an angel. As we look here, hope you guys are doing some fun stuff later on today. Well, kind of late already in California. It's close to nine, so I'm sure if you guys are probably hear me from other states, it's pretty, it's pretty late already. Okay, so let's talk to this one here. So these are ten true stories of angel encounters. First of all, an angel's guiding hand. But before we dive into that story, I'm just going to kind of man the comment section. Okay. Man, an angel's guiding hand. Jackie B. believes that her guardian angel came to her aid on two occasions to help her avoid a serious injury. According to her testimony, she actually physically felt and heard this protective force. Both encounters happened when she was a child in kindergarten. The first experience took place at a popular sledding hill where Jackie was enjoying the day with her family. The young girl decided to try sledding down the steepest part of the hill. She closed her eyes and started down the hill. I apparently hit someone going down and I was spinning out of control, she says. I was uh, heading for the metal guardrail at a fast, fast rate of speed. I didn't know what to do. I suddenly felt something push my chest down. I came within less than half an inch of the rail, but I didn't hit it. I could have lost my nose. Jackie's second experience occurred during her birthday celebration at school. She had run across the playground to place her crown on a bench. While running back to her friends, three boys tripped her. The playground was filled with metal objects and wood chips. Jackie went flying and something hit her just below the eye. But I felt something pulled me back when I fell, Jackie says. The teacher said that they saw me sort of fly forward and fly back at the same time. And as they hurried me to the nurse's office, I heard an unfamiliar voice keep telling me, don't worry, I am here. God doesn't want anything to happen to this baby. Very cool for Jackie. She got saved from two little things going on. This is called the Reading Angel. It's remarkable how many stories of angels come out of hospital experiences. It may not be so hard to understand why, 
when we remind ourselves that there are places of sharply focused emotion, prayers, and hope. <clears throat> um, a reader by the name of uh, D. Lord entered the hospital in 1994 with acute pain from a fibroid tumor the size of a grapefruit in her uterus. So very, very painful. Surgery was successful, but more complicated than expected, and her troubles worn over. Delor recalls that she was in a horrible pain. She had an allergic reaction to morphine that she was given for pain control, and the doctors tried to counteract it with other medications. This made a bad experience even worse. She had just had major surgery, and now she was dealing with the pain of acute drug reaction. After receiving more pain medication, she was able to sleep for a few hours. She states that as she awoke in the middle of the night, according to the wall clock, they read 2.45, and I heard someone speaking. I realized someone was at my bedside. She said it was a young woman <clears throat> with short hair and wearing a white hospital staff uniform. She was sitting and reading aloud from the Bible, and I said to her, Am I okay? Where? Why are you here with me? The woman visiting the dealer stopped reading but did not look up. She simply said, I will send here to make sure you'll be all right. You're going to be fine. Now you should get some rest and go back to sleep. She began to read again, and I drifted off to sleep. Next morning came, and she related this experience to the doctor, who checked and said that no staff had visited her overnight. She asked all the nurses, and no one knew of this particular visitor. To this day, she says, I firmly believe that I was visited by my guardian angel that night. She was sent to comfort me and assure me that I would be okay. Coincidentally, the time on the clock that night was 2.45. It is the exact time recorded on my birth certificate. Very cool. Perhaps more painful than any injury or illness is the feeling of utter hopelessness. The despair of the soul that leads one to thoughts of self-deletion. Mr. Dean experienced this pain and he was going through a divorce at the age of 26. The thought of being apart from his two young daughters was almost more than he could bear. But on one night of stormy darkness, Green, uh, Mr. Dean was given renewed hope. At the time, he was working as a derrick man on a drill rig. That night, he was having serious thought of self-deletion as he looked down from the 128-foot derrick. My family and I have strong beliefs in Jesus, but it was hard not to contemplate deleting myself, recalls Dean. In the worst thunderstorm I've ever seen, I climbed Derek to take my position to pull the pipe out of the hole that we were drilling. His co-workers urged him not to climb the Derek, saying that they'd rather have downtime than risk somebody's life. Dean ignored this and began to climb. Lightning flashed all around him. Thunder boomed, and he cried to God to take him. If I could have had my family, I didn't want to live, he states but I couldn't take my own life or self-delete myself, and God spared me. I don't know how I survived that night, but I did. A couple of weeks later, I bought a small Bible and traveled to the Peace River Hills, where my family was live, has lived for so long. I sat down on top of the one green hills and stared at Trudy to read. I had such a warm feeling enter into me as the sun parted through the clouds and shone on me. It was raining all around me, but it was dry and warm in my small spot on the top of the hill. Dean says that these moments changed his life for the better. He met his new wife and fell in love. They started a family together that includes his two daughters, he said. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and the angels you sent that day to touch my soul.
Those are some cool stories of angel apparitions. Have you guys ever had any apparitions or angel contact? I haven't, or maybe I have. You know, it says in the Bible that sometimes if you entertain strangers, you may be entertaining angels. So I'm sure once we go into our next form, I will probably be able to to realize how many times we met things or we observed things that at the time we thought were normal, but then they have a paranormal or a supernatural story behind it. Let's see. What else can we talk about today, guys? What is this called? It's called the Bridgewater Triangle, the Bermuda Triangle of Massachusetts. So this is south of Boston, west of Plymouth, east of Providence, if you guys are familiar with the area. There's a small area in us called the Devil's Triangle. We all know about the Bermuda's Triangle, which is also known, excuse me, as the Devil's Triangle because of its dark past. Unexplained death, disappearances, and disasters are the common scenes of its stories. But did you ever hear of the Bridgewater Triangle? Yes, this is an area about 200 square miles within southeastern Massachusetts in the U.S., which has often been called the Bermuda Triangle of Massachusetts. Bridgewater Triangle is claimed to be a site of alleged paranormal phenomena ranging from UFOs to poltergeist, orbs, balls of fire, and other spectral phenomena. Various Bigfoot-like sightings, giant snakes and thunderbirds, also large monsters. The term Bridgewater Triangle was first coined in the 1970s by the renowned cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman when he first defined the specific boundaries of the strange big, uh, Bridgewater Triangle in his book, Mysterious America. In his book, Coleman wrote that the Bridgewater Triangle encloses the town of Abington, Rehoboth, and Freetown. That's as the points of the triangle. And inside this triangle, there are Brockton, Whitman, West Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, Bridgewater, Middlesbrough, Denton, Berkeley, Greenham, Norton, Easton, <laughs> Lakeville, Chaconk, and Taunton. Within the Bridgewater Triangle area, there are a few historic places that attract people from all over the world. Some of them are sighted here at a glance. So you have the Hako Mock Swamp. This is central to the area, uh, which means actually in, uh, in this particular dialect, that means the place where spirits dwell. It is a vast wetland containing much of the northern part of the southeastern Massachusetts. Hawkbuck Swamp has been feared for a long time, even in modern times. It has, for some, regained a place of mystery and fear. Many people are said to have vanished there. Therefore, the paranormal enthusiast community love to wander to this place. There's an area also called the Dighton Rock, also found within the boundaries. Um, it's a 40-ton boulder originally located in riverbed of Taunton River at Berkeley. This particular rock is uh, known for its petroglyphs, carved designs of ancient and uncertain origins, and the controversy surrounding its creators. You have the Freetown Fall River State Forest, which has reportedly been the site of various 
cult activity, excuse me, including animal sacrifice, ritualistic deletions <clears throat> committed by admitted Satanists, as well as number of gangland <clears throat> murders and another number of deletions. You have Profile Rock, the supported, uh, this supported site of where the Native American people of Wapanoag, historical figure Anawan, received the lost Wamput belt from King Philip. Legend has it that the ghost of a man can be seen sitting on the rock with his legs crossed or with outstretched arms located within the Freetown River State um, Solitude. There's also Thunderbird uh, sightings, which are giant birds, animal mutilations, Native American curses, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Anybody from Massachusetts maybe can attest how you, probably, I'm sure you guys are probably driven uh, through their area for sure. But have you guys experienced anything abnormal or paranormal, if I might say? Pretty weird stuff. Uh, let me see. This one looks like a cool story. This is called Diana of the Dunes, the Indiana ghost story that will leave you absolutely baffled. The tale of Diana of the Dunes is one of the oldest ghost stories to date in Indiana. It pertains to a young, ghostly woman who would often be seen walking around the Indiana Dunes. The woman was known as Diane, or Diane, different spelling. Through her real name was Alice Mabel Gray. She was called Diana because of her beauty. Diana, or Alice, had moved to Indiana Dunes due to her failing eyesight and desire to live again where she grew up. She lived in primitive conditions amongst the sand dunes and became interested in the history, ecology, and geology of the region. She was a trained mathematician, astronomist, and classical language at the University of Chicago in the early 1900s. Alice rejected a wage-earning urban life in favor for solitary existence in the Indiana dunes. Alice's unconventional lifestyle fascinated the general public and the area news reporter who gave her the Diana moniker. Some say Diana still walks the beach, trying to relieve her happy days before losing her eyesight and succumbing to an abusive husband. Others claim that always say Diana's ghost even while Diana was alive. Either way, this baffling story helped make the Indiana Dunes popular and helped gain attention and needed to become a public state park. Though no one can quite explain Diana's reappearance or understand her motives for haunting this beach, she does seem to be a harmless, friendly ghost. Though the final years of her life, Diana attained the status of a local celebrity, but her greatest legacy was her role in focusing public interest in the Indiana Dunes when the natural area was threatened by encroaching real estate development. Efforts have begun to preserve the dunes, but the local community support was critical in helping establish the area as a nature preserved. Public interest in Diana's nonconformist lifestyle, the legend that surrounds the Diana of the Dunes legend, and her writings and speeches in support of preserving the area helped bring the dunes to the public attentions and eventually the creation of the Indiana Dunes State Park. 
You guys ever been to that place? Looks like a very uh, beautiful, peaceful, solemn place where you can kind of get lost or just wonder about life. Think about, you know, things other than the new iPhone bills or the th silly things that tend to occupy our minds sometimes. Let's see what else we can see here. This is kind of cool. This is the strange story of Carolina Olsen, the girl who slept for 32 years straight. Medical professions from a variety of fields were very perplexed by her condition as it challenged conventional understanding of sleep disorders and challenged the limits of human resilience. In the annals of history, there are myriad narratives that define comprehension, tales that seems to challenge the boundaries of human understanding, and one such account is that of Carolina Olsen, often referred to as the girl who slept 32 years straight. In this piece, we delve into the enigma that is Carolina's story, a tale that has left medical professions and historians alike bewildered. Born in 1862, Carolina Olsen led a typical life with her four brothers on the secluded Swedish island of Okno. Her life, though simple, was filled with joy and devoid of any health concerns. However, in the winter of 1876, an unfortunate accident set in motion a series of events that would catapult Carolina into the annals of medical history. On a freezing February day of 1876, 14-year-old Carolina suffered a head injury after tipping over and falling on ice while returning home from school. The young girl retired to bed that evening, presumably to recover. However, the morning of February 23rd marked the beginning of a 32-year, 11,730 days of a long slumber for Carolina, a sleep from which she would not awaken until the age of 46. Also, family thought impoverished and living in a relative remote location managed to gather funds with the help of their supportive community to seek some kind of medical attention for Carolina. The perplexing nature of Carolina's condition left the doctors very stumped as they struggled to ascertain whether it was a coma or something entirely else. Typically, coma-like states are induced immediately following a traumatic incident. However, Carolina's delayed reaction perplexed the medical practitioners. And moreover, her physical state presented more questions than answers. Despite being in a seemingly dormant state, Carolina's body displayed signs of homeostasis or overall wellness. She did not lose any weight and her, nails and, uh, her hair and nails stopped growing. This led to the doctors to believe that Carolina was in a state of suspended animation. By 1882, after six years of Carolina's unyielding slumber, the Olsons decided to move her to the city of Ascaram for advanced medical treatments. The doctors in that particular city, armed with electroshock therapy, attempted to rouse Carolina from her prolonged sleep. Despite their efforts, Carolina's condition remained unchanged. She was discharged from the facility a month later with the diagnosis of dementia paralytica, a form of paralysis connected with dementia. Despite her physical state, Carolina displayed signs of cognitive awareness. Her family noticed her responding to emotional events around her, including the passing of one of her brothers, despite remaining in a deep sleep. 
This led to the belief that Carolina was in a state of deep sleep or coma rather than a vegetative state. In a turn of events that can only be described as miraculous, Carolina Olsen awoke from her 32-year slumber in 1908 at the age of 46. And despite the passage of three decades, she did not look a day older than 14, further confounding those familiars with her case. Following her awakening, Carolina claimed to have no memory of the 32 years she slept. The news of her recovery spread rapidly, attracting the attention of reporters, doctors, and the curious public, all eager to learn more about her story. And despite the extraordinary circumstances, Carolina lived a remarkably healthy life post-awakening, passing away on April 5th, 1915. Carolina Olson's story continues to baffle medical professions and historians alike, despite extensive investigation and numerous theories up until today, there remains no definite explanation for her 32-year-old slumber. Her tale serves as a reminder of the mysteries of the human body and the enigmatic nature of sleep. That's very interesting. I've never heard of that before. I mean, that's downright amazing. How can the body just sort of stay at a stay still, if you will, without nourishment, without anything, just kind of day that way for 32 years or well, for however long she slept it's amazing let's see this oops my bad here let me just open up a new page we're going to talk about sylphium which is a lost miracle herb of antiquity what is sylphium have you guys ever heard of sylphium Despite its disappearance from the world, the legacy of Silphium endures until today. The plant might still be growing in the wilderness of North Africa, unrecognized by the modern world. Known for its numerous therapeutic and culinary uses, it is a tale of a botanical marvel that vanished from existence, leaving behind a trail of intrigue and fascination to continue to captivate society today. Silphium, an ancient plant that held a special place in the hearts of the Romans and Greeks, might still be around unbeknownst to us. This mysterious plant, once a prized possession of emperors and a staple of ancient kitchens and apotherkies, was a cure for our wonder drug. The plant's disappearance from history is a fascinating tale of demand and extinction. It is an ancient botanical marvel that left behind a trail of intrigue and fascination that continues to captivate researchers today. Silphium was a highly sought-after plant native to the region of Cyrene in North Africa, now modern-day Libya. It reportedly belonged to the Ferula genus, which comprises of plants commonly known as the giant fennels. The plant was characterized by its sturdy roots covered in dark bark, hollow stem akin to a fennel, and leaves that resembled celery. Attempts to cultivate silphium outside its native region, particularly in Greece, were very unsuccessful. The wild plant flourished only in Cyrene, where it played a pivotal role in the local economy. It was extensively traded with Greece and Rome. Its significant value is depicted on the coins of Cyrene, which often feature images of silphium or its seeds on the reverse side. The demands for silphium was so high that it is said to be worth its weight in silver, 
Roman Emperor Augustus sought to regulate its distribution by demanding that all harvest of silphium and its juices be sent to him as tribute to Rome. Silphium was also a popular ingredient in the culinary world of ancient Greece and Rome. Its stalks and leaves were used as seasoning, often grated all over food like Parmesan or mixed in sauces and salts. The leaves were also added to salads for healthier options, while the crunchy stalks were enjoyed roasted, boiled, or sautéed. Moreover, every part of the plant, including the roots, were consumable. The roots were often enjoyed after being dipped in vinegar. A notable mention is silphium, its ancient cuisine, can be found in the Therecochinaria, a 5th century Roman cookbook by Apicius, which includes a recipe for oxygarum sauce, a popular fish and vinaigrette sauce that uses silphium amongst its ingredients. Silphium was used to enhance the flavor of pine kernels, which were then used as seasoned various dishes. And interestingly, silphium was not only consumed by humans, but was also used to fatten cattle and sheep, allegedly making the meat tasty upon slatter. I wonder if you can look for old scat in that area of the world, if you were able to do some kind of um, research into scat, because I'm sure there's probably seeds within the scat of animals. You can revive it that way. Silphium was also known as the miracle marvel. In the early days of modern medicine, silphium found its place as a panacea. The Roman author Philony the Elder encyclopedic work Naturalis Historia frequently mentions silphium. Furthermore, renowned physicians like Galen and Hippocrates wrote about their medical practices using silphium. Silphium was prescribed for a cure-all ingredient in a broad range of ailments, including coughs, sore throats, fevers, headaches, epilepsy, goiter, warts, hernias, and growths of the anus. <laughs> if you have a growth of the anus, look for the sylphus. Moreover, a, pol- a poultice of sylph- uh, silphium was believed to cure tumors, heart inflammation, toothaches, and even TB or tuberculosis. But that's not all, folks. Silphium was also used to prevent tetanus and rabies from feral dog bites, to grow hair for those with alopecia, and to induce labor in expected mothers. Aside from its culinary and medicinal uses, silphium was renowned for its aphrodisiac properties and was considered the world's most effective birth control of the time. The heart-shaped seeds of the plant were believed to increase libido in men and cause erections. For women, silphium was used to manage hormonal issues and to induce menstruation. The plant's use as a contraceptive or arbordifant has been extensively recorded. Women consume silphium mixed with wine to move menstruation, a practice documented by this Pliny the Elder. And um, the heart shape of the silphium seed might have been the source of traditional heart symbols uh, globally recognized as an image of love today. There you go. That's some good trivia. So yeah, the seed looks like a heart, and if it was good for erections, then maybe that's where our use of the heart came from. That's very cool. Despite its widespread use and popularity, silphium disappeared from history. The extinction of silphium is a subject of ongoing debate. Overharvesting could have played a significant role in the loss of this species, as silphium could only grow successfully in Cyrene. The land might have been overexploited due to years of harvesting the crop. Due to combination of rainfall and mineral-rich soil, there were limits on how many plants could be grown at one time. It is said that Cyrenians tried to balance the harvest. However, 
The plant eventually was harvested to extinction by the end of the first century AD. The last stock of silphium was reportedly harvested and given to Roman Emperor Nero as an oddity, according to Pliny the Elder. Nero, Nero promptly ate the gift. <laughs> Other factors such as overgazing by sheep, climate change, and desertification might also have contributed to making the environments and soil unsuitable for silphium to grow. Despite its disappearance, the legacy of silphium endures. According to some researchers, the plant might still be growing in the wild of North Africa and recognized by a modern world until such discoveries made. Silphium remains an enigma, a plant that once held a reverier place in ancient society. Now lost the time. Hmm, very interesting. I like that article. I had heard about Selfium before, but not to its detail. And I like the fact that it was connected to, uh, still connected to our, what we consider our heart symbol today. So yeah, folks, um, we have maybe time for one more. Let me see if there's anybody, anybody out there. Is there anybody out there? Pretty quiet today. I guess people are up and about on Friday. Shouldn't surprise me. Um, hope you guys are doing well. Go ahead and give this video a like and share it, please. And if you haven't done so, go ahead and try to, try to follow our social media accounts. <clears throat> we have Instagram, Strange Days Live. We have TikTok, Strange Days Live. And also we have our YouTube channel and, um, like and subscribe and share it with people that you care about and that maybe you have a strange fascination for the paranormal with. Also, we have uh, our show in over 50 different podcast apps. Um, so when you look for our show in the podcast world, the only difference is that we are Strange Days Paranormal. That's the way you can find us. Strange Days and then Paranormal. We're not under Strange Days Live because we're not live. We are paranormal. It's an easier way to sort of people pick, uh, you know, once you have something in your name, it's easier for them to find. So people that are interested in the paranormal work were kind of easier to find that way. And uh, with that being said... Should I do one more or should I call it a night? Let's see here. A little bit. Um, I mean, there are some cool stuff left over. Mm, let's do one more. This is titled Lost by Deception Island. The Strange Case of Edward Allen Oxford Edward Allen Oxford was marooned for two years during the, early, the end of World War I on what he claimed to have been what he claimed to have been marooned for no more than six weeks. Okay, let me read that again because it's probably written wrong or it's just I'm getting tired. Edward Allen Oxford was marooned for two years during the end of World War I on what he claimed to have been marooned for, that's a bit, I was written bad, for more than six weeks on an uninhabited tropical island off the coast of Antarctica. And officials called him insane. So basically he said that he was marooned on a tropical island off the coast of the Antarctica. Okay, so you, th you, you get where this gentleman is coming from? 
1916, a German U-boat sank a merchant marine ship flying the Allied colors off the coast of Antarctica, somewhere between Elephant Island and Deception Island in the South Shetlands Archipelago. It was believed that all souls aboard the ship had long had been long lost, along with its cargo of food and medical supplies bound to the Western Front. That is, until a lone survivor was recovered some two years later in 1918 on an unmanned tidal island just off the northwest coast of the Antarctica Peninsula. The survivor identified himself as Edward Allen Oxford, a British imperial citizen. Despite two years having passed, he claimed to have been marooned for no more than six weeks on a nearby larger island, which he insisted was warm and tropical with abundant vegetation and wildlife. Since the island on which he was discovered was a tidal island, it was not understood that he had survived for such a long time. Regardless, as no such island was known to exist that far south, and there was a significant discrepancy of time between his account and reality. Therefore, Oxford was decreed, quote-unquote, mad by imperial authorities, which was an obvious consequence of the circumstances and was sent to a convalescent facility in Nova Scotia to recover. At the facility, he met and fell in love with one Mildred Constance Landmeyer, or so-called the Bluebird or Nursing Sister with the Canadian Army Medical Corps. He was released after 18 months, and the two were married and moved westward to live near a cousin of Oxford, who ran a small dairy farm in the province of Quebec, where Oxford aided his cousin with farming chores. Mr. Oxford later took up jobs as a forester, as he did not have the knack for agriculture or in farming. This work life caused him to be away from his beloved Mildred for weeks and sometimes months at a time, a lifestyle with which he was well acquainted as a merchant marine. During this period, he penned many letters to his wife, in which he professes undying devotion for her, and in which he extensively recorded his memories of having been marooned on his supposedly tropical island off the coast of Antarctica. Despite official denials of any such geographic anomalies in the region, Oxford stuck to his stories throughout his whole life and is believed to have written some 200 letters to his wife describing various aspects of the fabulous land he supposedly discovered there. Many of the letters found recently in their Quebec house describe his life in the lumber camp of the region, along with this vivid recollection of having been marooned on a supported tropical island. Eventually, the official imperial records over 100 years old confirmed that Edward Allen Oxford was a merchant marine, that his ship indeed had been torpedoed, and that he was indeed recovered some two years later without any rational explanation of how he had been able to survive for so long in such a harsh environment. Today's Oxford story has been forgotten, and what was the whole world prioritize about his stories that the official called him insane, but no one could offer any explanation for how he survived in supposedly sub-zero temperatures without food for so long. Wow, that's a cool, cool, cool story, Mr. Oxford and his beautiful island. All right, my friends, this is the end, beautiful friend. Um... We'll wait until Monday to do the follow-up shows. So I might, uh, no, I won't have time tomorrow to show. Maybe sad Sunday I'll do a little pop-up. But uh, 
Thank you for watching, for always being present. God bless you guys. Thank you for the listeners that listen, re-listen to the show, not as a live format, but doing the podcast or doing just the archive section. That means a lot. And uh, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Stay safe, guys. God bless you and take care. Thank you.